Hey friends, Greg, host of the show here. So, recently I had to take my car to the dealership. There was a recall on the cooling system, and uh, my aircon also started kind of misbehaving. That made me wonder. The car is fine, everything's great, and there's nothing wrong with it apart from, you know, the driver's seat squeaking a little bit, but that's just wear and tear. But, um... Because my aircon was out, I just felt like this should be covered by the warranty because that cools the battery as well. And that made me think, what about the maintenance of this car, you know, beyond the um, the statutory or whatever, the default that you get, you know, when you buy the car? What if I wanted to be a bit more nerdy or just have somebody who has a bit more interest in things? You know, dealerships just offer you cookie cutter service because they're for people who mostly don't care. You just want to bring your car. It's like a utility, right? But I do care, and there's people who care around as well. So that reminded me of the uh, the time when I started driving EV. I can't remember exactly the date, but it was my first Kent EV meetup. And I ran into a, a person called Pete who basically said to me, or maybe somebody actually referred me to him, saying, oh, he started this thing, and he's a mechanic, and he knows a lot about fixing electric cars, and I kind of, my ear perked up. And, uh, well, (laughs) spoiler alert, we're going to be talking to Pete today, to Pete and Matt. And uh, Pete started Hybrid uh, Electric Vehicle Repair Alliance, Hevra, which is a UK and the European organization that helps people with fixing their cars, you know, after the warranty or sort of outside of the uh, the dealership network. And um, I thought, hang on, you know, this issue that I'm having, how else would I be treated if I went to a Hevra garage instead of going to the uh, Kia garage? Um, I mean, spoiler alert, the recalls um, can be only be dealt with at the at the garage and you know there's no cost to you as an owner so um it's just no issues but the um anything else i think you might you know look into taking a car to a have a garage in the future instead of uh, servicing it at a kia garage uh, or whatever dealership garage in the future uh, you know just listen to this episode you might find something you like and you might learn something so, without further ado, your speed. Peter, I think I think I think we met at a, a meetup a while ago, like two thousand nineteen yes. or eighteen. One of the Kent EV meetups. Uh, way, way. <laughs> That's it, um, yeah. Uh, my name's Peter Melville, and um, I was the founder of Hevra uh, about six years ago. And um, these days, my job title is engineering director, so I'm in charge of anything technical to do with everything that we do, basically. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I'm Matt from uh, Cedar Electric. So, um, yeah, we've got um, some car garages uh, just doing all the -the run-of-the-mill normal stuff. Um, And we do a lot of diagnostics on a lot of different manufacturers. Uh, So then we started uh, the company Cedar Electric, uh, where we're just doing electric vehicles um, and trying to get involved with some more in-depth repairs on the electric vehicles. Okay, that's cool. Um, So the... um I mean, the first question that I have to ask is, you know, uh, why why having inter- independent garages fixing electric cars? You know, uh, everyone tells me that electric cars are scary. There are iPads on the wheel, black boxes. You know, you've heard it all, I'm sure. Uh, can you, like, demystify some of that stuff? Um, um, yeah. So um, if I go back to the beginning when it all started, um, my background is in um, fixing electrical problems on behalf of other garages, basically. Um, so then when I bought an electric vehicle myself, I sort of had a foot in both camps, if you like. So I um, it, I was familiar with garages and 
um, how they worked and um, what they were good at, what they struggled with and all that sort of stuff. And equally, being an electric vehicle driver, I was speaking um, to other electric vehicle drivers and I was aware of how things needed to look from that side. So, um, um, Hevra, basically the idea was to, to combine these two things so that we could build something that was, was good for the garages and good for the drivers as well. Okay. And it's not, it's not only just electric cars, it's obviously hybrids as well, although, you know, we're all trying to push people to, to drive pure electric as much as we can. Yeah, well, well if I'm honest, I'm not the biggest fan of, of hybrids myself, but um, the, the reason that we cover hybrids as well is because there, there is a um, technical similarity. Um, the high voltage systems, the braking systems and stuff you get on hybrids are very similar to what you get on electric. So they're, they're a sort of... Um, great way of um practicing for want of a better word you know building up your experience that is completely relevant to electric vehicles it's a great way for garages to get return on investment rather than purely focusing on electric vehicles and, and also i think it's important as well i think if you buy a hybrid car and nobody's able to fix it i think that would be a problem for you then buying an electric car you would in in your mind you would think i don't want to own an electric car because i've had a hybrid and nobody could fix it therefore um it, you know that would put me off and that's what we're trying to avoid that, that's 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 good um i mean <laughs> yeah um matt uh so you you guys are doing just electric cars or is it hybrids as well, Do you do as well yes yeah yeah so um in answer to your question why we decided to do the electric cars, yeah. um, I suppose for us it's just natural progression. And we've always liked to um, – we we done we do a lot of diagnostics on new cars as well, so always on the latest technology. Um, and also we've got a lot of technicians that are quite well-skilled, and um, I think if they weren't doing electric cars, they probably wouldn't be that happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's a natural progression that we need to stay with the – technology movement of the motor industry um so yeah so we've started diving into it um and i think what's quite exciting about the independent doing electric vehicles is we can offer something to the dealer that's different repair and it can often save quite a lot of money um and that's quite an exciting thing that i don't think we really got as much in the combustion engine world um okay yeah that's certainly a new avenue that's quite exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the 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 myth of the car that cannot be fixed and is just a an iPad on the wheels and the black box is obviously that's not true, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't have to say that to to my audience, but uh, you know, I've got qualified people here to to attest yeah, to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, um, mechanically, as I'm, I'm sure you and your audience know, me mechanically they're they're relatively simple. There's far fewer moving parts than there are on a traditional car. Yeah. Um, Obviously, in terms of the electronics, they they are fairly complex. But, I, I mean, the nice thing for us in, in garages and those of us who are fixing cars is um, although electric vehicles are different, we've, we've been gradually getting used to electronics on cars for the last 30 years or so. It's not like we've gone from, uh, you know, a Citroen 2 CV to a Tesla Model 3. You know, we, we've, we've had a very gradual um, transition uh, in order to get used to the electronics and and yeah. get familiar with yeah. testing it and repairing it and um, precautions and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I mean that, that's it. The um, um, cars had you know complicated electronics boxes and and um, control modules for I don't know since probably two thousand no no nineteen nineties I would I would guess. Late yeah, 1990s. yeah. So it, it, yeah, it started off gradually with you know you started having a computer for the engine, and then they started adding airbags and ABS, and then it, it got more and more so, and then they started joining them all together with networks. So it's it, it's been quite a gradual thing, and um, unfortunately, not all garages have kept up. But for those who have, like like Cedar, it's it, this is just the next step, really, in in a path that we've been following for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, so, so speaking of, of Hevra, actually, I presume uh, Cedar is part of the uh, Hevra group, right? You've got the sticker. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've been there. As soon as we started Electric, we joined Hevra straight away. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, if I have anybody in in my audience who, you know, has been or, or is 
uh, running an, a garage or you know knows somebody who is uh, running a garage and they're kind of like oh I don't know about this electric stuff it will take it will put uh, you know uh, take me out of business when I have to start looking at electric cars is what what's the uh, what does the Hevra provide to a, an independent garage do you approach independent garages or do you do they have to approach you what is the what is the you know how does what does it look like what is Hevra to like the what I'm trying to say is basically it's like a two-pronged question like on one hand you've got uh, garage owners and on the other hand as a as a car owner if i drive you know past a garage that has a hevra sticker on it i need to know what's what's happening like why is that sticker there what does it give me does that make sense yeah of course so um so when when this all started it was um it was basically impossible to know if a garage was any good at fixing electric cars so if you if you had one um it was, you know, unless you knew sort of the right probing questions to ask a garage, it was very difficult to sort of know if it was in safe hands, if you like. Um, and the, the um, Hevra was was designed to fix that problem. So um, there are two sides to it, and um, th- this applies whether you're a garage or, or whether you're a customer, really. So um, the first side is the sort of customer-facing side of it where we – we have the map on the website where you can find a garage in your area that's one of our members. And, um, you know, many of our garages have signs up and stuff like that. So that's um, the customer-facing side of it. Then the, the garage-facing side of it is is essentially we we aim to provide anything that the garage would need in order to, to do a good job on that car. So um, what that generally consists of is um, for the garage to sign up with us, they um, have to have an industry standard qualification so um that's typically a nationally recognized level three electric vehicle repair qualification um they also need to meet meet some other criteria to do with their business and tools and stuff like that but the 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 technical qualification is um um obviously somebody on site needs to hold that qualification um what we then do is we provide written documentation so um, let's say you've you've gone away, you've done a training course. On the training course, they had a Nissan Leaf, for example. You learn all about that car. You you got your certificate and everything else. You come back to your workshop, and um, customer brings in a Jaguar I Pace, for example. That vehicle is is very different to the vehicle that you did your training on, and our documentation um, effectively provides sort of a quick guide as to this is what you need to know about this particular car. So. Um, if you've got a job coming in the next day, you can sort of quickly have a look, right, but what do I need to know about this car? How does the uh, thermal management work? Um, how are the motors and the wheels? And if it's a hybrid, how does it, the engine integrate with the motors and the wheels and everything else? Um, is there anything else that's particular to that car? Um, stuff like the electrical architecture networks and all, all that sort of stuff. So um, that, that obviously gives the, the individual technician a, a sort of head start in terms of repairing that vehicle. Um, we, um, then we also provide the garage with our technical support service. So, um, let's say you're in that situation where you've done your training, you've, you've got a car and you've, you've looked at the documentation for that car, but you're still not quite sure where to go next. Um, the garage then can then get in touch with us and, um, we'll then, um, help that garage fix that car. Um, and this is a really important part of it because this, um, is really important for the garages because it's a real benefit to membership, um, having someone um, help them with that vehicle. Um, it's a benefit to us because this is how we learn how to focus our research and development. This is how we write our documentation because we, um, every time we do this, we learn a little bit more about that particular vehicle, that particular fault, or um, we might develop a new test specifically for that vehicle um and all that then goes out to help the rest of the network and and obviously the biggest benefit of all really is is to the owner of the car who gets their car fixed because in in my um previous job where i I used to go to garages and and fix cars on a sort of individual basis sometimes you would have a car that wasn't necessarily worth spending the time on so you think well this this job might turn out to be just a simple broken wire or something like that but it's going to take me five hours to find out and then after that five hours it might turn out to be some really expensive part 
And so often the owner of the car would say, oh, well, it's an old car. I, I don't think I'll bother. And one of the benefits of Hevra is that the first time we see a particular problem, we can put the effort in. We, we can go back and forth to that garage. We can do all the legwork and um, work out everything we need to know about that system. The garage can then do the tests and find what's wrong with the car. Once we've done all that hard work once, that information can then be shared across the network and effectively keep more cars on the road and keep more garages in work. Yeah, I'm, I, I, but again, I've never worked actually for the, um, I've never worked as a mechanic or, you know, I've got electrical engineering background, but that's, so I understand that. I understand how that works. But the, uh, from my limited chats with, with different garages and, and OEM garages as well, you know, for a particular OEM like Kia or uh, I don't know, or Ford, they would have that ability within the network, right? So if you bring your car to a Ford garage, they would be able to talk to somebody in Ford and have all the documentation, obviously, just for Ford cars. Um, but the uh, but they're kind of limited in within that brand. Do you have access to all that stuff, or uh, as well, or uh... yeah? So there's a legal requirement um, called the Motor Vehicle Block Exemption Order that effectively means. Um, manufacturers aren't allowed to provide preferential treatment to their own dealerships um, in order to keep a, a level playing field in terms of um, competition. Um, they have to make that information available to independent garages as well. So so our members will be able to um, buy a, a service manual, a wiring diagram, all these things are, are obviously in an electronic format these okay. days, but they'll be able to buy those things from the manufacturer. And... Um, we find the information from the manufacturer um, sometimes is really good, sometimes it's not so good. Um, it's very, very rarely updated. So what they would do is a manufacturer will make a car, they will then make all the documentation for that car, and then that will be it forever generally, whereas, whereas our documentation will evolve. So um, if we start to see that a particular fault becomes more common, we will actually... Um, alter our test plans and our documentation to say, well, actually check this first because this is, we've worked out through experience, this is the most likely fault. So check that first. And if that's okay, you can then go on to do some other tests and things like that. And and that's a constantly evolving thing to improve it and, and upgrade it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Matt, I, I've, you know, so, yeah. sorry, like we've just been chatting here, but like, what is your experience with like electric cars and what got you into fixing electric cars? Like, and how do you yeah, let's just start with that and we can follow on from there. Okay, uh, what was fixing electric cars? Well, I say just a natural progression. We're always trying to be at the top of our game. Um, so we were never not going to go into electric cars. I suppose the question was when and how profitable was it going to be? Yeah. Well, that was um, the first thing we were going to start with. Um, and so we started gently, should I say, and we had Heverus support because – at the start, I suppose, right at the beginning, you are going into a little bit of an unknown. Sometimes you might not be as efficient as you'd like to be. Um, but then we found it a really, really interesting and good industry. Um, very enjoyable. And I say, and I think I, I just get excited about what you can save customers compared to. So there's so many instances where a customer might have an inverter or a battery full, um, been to the dealer, but they only replace the component. Whereas you know, us ourselves and with Hevra support, we often will open up that component and repair it instead of replacing it. And, you know, you can save, you know, five, £10,000 sometimes for a customer, which also keeps a EV car on the road sometimes yeah. just for an economical repair. So that's something exciting um, that can be really good. Uh, so that's that's probably why we keep doing it, I'd say. Um, and there's... You know, so much more that can be done that the main dealers don't as such. Um, so yeah, I heard about the uh, the the legislation that you you mentioned or the law that you mentioned, uh, Pete. But I didn't know what it's called off the top of my head. I wouldn't remember. I'm sure you have to you have to explain that to people all the time. How does the uh, the maintenance of of uh, you know ice car or internal combustion car compare to EV from your perspective as an independent garage? Is is it just the same? Uh, because you you know you have access to like all the parts and, and and documentation, or is it simpler? You know, obviously the worry is that this is what I've heard from some of the garages that I went to in the past. Is you know now that people drive going to drive electric, they're going to go out of business because the people just won't turn up because the cars are much more reliable. Um, 
But apart from that, <laughs> once the car turns up and there's something wrong with it, how how does it compare to to uh, to fixing a nice car? So in terms of the, I suppose servicing side of it, yes, you're going to do less. So if you were to a garage that only done servicing, you might struggle a bit. But I don't think there's any less work as such. Overall, I think you just got to be a bit more dynamic and more versatile and do more stuff on vehicles than you probably used to. I think certainly what I've noticed is um, labour times are probably higher on some of these cars um, when you're doing extensive repairs. But yeah, the servicing costs, um, Pete, you'd agree, is a lot less on EV cars, um, especially the, the time to do it and the parts required is is less. Um, but yeah, one thing um, obviously you do need to bear in mind is that you're carrying out the whereas um, on ice cars a lot of time once they're in out of warranty of three years you might have done a, an interim service or a major service or a full service whatever sometimes the garage would almost make their own service package whereas what we find with EV cars is we're always doing OEM service manufacturer servicing following the sheet because you know a lot of these batteries have got eight year warranties so we're making sure we always follow the manufacturer guideline to the service that's probably a big shift in doing an EV service from an ice engine service but um in terms of can you do it yeah of course you can as long as you're you're geared up to do it yeah I, this is skipping some questions that i have on the list but the yeah but you, you you mentioned a very good point that people always ask about is you know if i buy a brand new i don't know uh kia Eniro today yeah um they will sell you a, a, a three-year uh uh servicing plan which is yeah. like 700 or 800 pounds or something uh, ridiculously high um can i just bring the car to an independent carriage and keep my warranty or uh are there any restrictions on that no as long as they're carrying out the exact service sheet per the manufacturer okay um, then there, there's no, no no problem there sometimes they do ask for a, a um like a, a battery evaluation which you might need to use a dealer tool for but as long as you've got that, which we, we do, um, then it's not a problem. Um, yeah, okay. so, um, I suppose sometimes you might maybe not have the tooling and that would be a shift for the garage. You'd need to invest in some tooling. But the tooling is always available. Um, but if you were to buy every tool for every manufacturer, it might be whether it's cost-effective. I suppose it, it depends on what, what your business is and what, why you do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to put anybody on the spot because obviously there's just so many variants and so many possibilities. I'm sure there's yeah. some good, there's loads of good stories and some bad stories like like with everything. The other question that I always hear is like, but you know, but if I service my car with an independent carriage and I have a warranty claim after three years or four years on my powertrain and the battery, can OEM actually say, no, it's been serviced incorrectly by, you know, Joe in, uh, in Tunbridge or, you know... Uh, <laughs> No, as long as you're, um, I say, following the manufacturer service sheet, so we always print that off and follow it to to the point, um, and are using OEM parts or the equivalent to, um, then as long, as long as you're carrying out that, I, I can't see any problem. Would you agree with that, Pete? Yes, and this is um, covered by the motor vehicle block exemption order that uh, I mentioned. And, um, yeah, you can, you can have your car... Um, maintained by an independent without invalidating the warranty. And and actually, if something fails un, that's covered by the warranty and the manufacturer refuses the claim, um, if, it, if it did end up going to court and all that sort of stuff, the, the manufacturer actually has to prove that it was down to incorrect maintenance that the fault occurred. So um, let's say, for example, um, you went to an independent garage and they did something wrong on your service and then a year later, your windscreen wiper motor failed, um, they would have to prove that the windscreen wiper motor failed because of what was done wrong on the service. Even, even if it, it was clear that the service had been done wrong, it would have to be a direct cause of that for them to um, invalidate the warranty on that component. I mean, just, just to be clear, I haven't heard of anybody who's been refused for that reason. It's just a... No. <laughs> it's a yes, purely exactly. hypothetical question, but it's a question that people will ask and do yeah. ask. With with my personally with my leasing plan that I had uh, on the car, I had to go to the queue. I mean, it was part of the package, so you pre, it was pre, prepaid. So I, you know, I didn't have to go there, but it was already paid for. So it just kind of yeah, makes sense. And, to- and 
and th th that's an important thing to point out with um, if the car's leased um, is that um, sometimes, and, it, and it's worth checking the paperwork, sometimes the leasing company will actually specify that they want it to be serviced by a main dealer yeah. or something like that. And, and at the end of the day, although it's nothing to do with the warranty, but at the end of the day, it's their car. So uh, under the terms of your lease, you, you may find that, that there are things like that in place. But, it, but if it's your car and it's, um, and it's the warranty you're concerned about, then there's, there's no issues. You hear on the, in the media all the time that, oh, yeah, you know, electric cars, we're going to have to replace the batteries in them and, have to, and then give X number of years on them. But, you know, th there are cars that are like 10 years old, like Model S's, some, some of them. Um, the other one is Nissan Leaf, that's, uh, you know, especially the 24 and 30 kilowatt hour uh, models. The, the batteries were in the. Nissan made some engineering choices, but let's just put it this way or business choices. Um, that uh, I don't think paid out very or worked out very well for uh, for those batteries. So, uh, have you had anybody in a ten year old Model S turning up and saying, "Can you replace me the the, the whole battery?" Or, or you know, a battery warning light comes on and Tesla told me it's going to be eight grand um, or buy a new car. And you could, uh, any stories to that effect that you can talk about? Um, yeah, I think there's there's two separate things here. So. Um there's there's basically two things that can go wrong with a battery one of them is a fault in which case you know your car works perfectly one day and then the next day doesn't work and and the other one is degradation which the car still works but um you know every year when you do your holiday and you do your long drive you realize you have to stop a little bit sooner because the um because yeah. the battery's degrading faults we uh, we can generally fix so um the Tesla Model S you mentioned, we um, we didn't used to be able to repair those batteries, but now we can. There's something that we've worked on, and we've we've worked out how to repair them, and we've repaired a few of those. Again, we've we've repaired various other batteries where things such as the circuit boards and the contactors and, and things other than the cells inside the battery pack have have failed. And um, we we can open that up, we can do the repair, we can reseal it, and um, get that um, battery back in the car. Um, in terms of degradation, it um, it uh, depends exactly what's happened, really. So sometimes we'll find that um, um, one cell has particularly degraded and the rest of the pack is in relatively good, even if it's not as new, but it's in relatively good condition. And in that situation, um, we can take that battery apart, we can replace that cell, and we can get the car back on the road. Um, the other thing that we do sometimes find is sometimes all of the cells have just degraded a little bit, and obviously the only solution to that really is is to replace all of the cells, which which is a more expensive thing. To be honest, that 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 is a harder thing to fix um, in, in terms of being able to fix it within the customer's budget. But I mean, to be honest, generally speaking, what what's happened is there's enough demand for cars that do short journeys that people just tend to change the use of the car so that um, a car that perhaps was someone's main car 10 years ago is now someone else's car just for taking the kids to school and popping to the shops car, you know, it's 10 years old sort of thing. Um, but um, battery replacement is, is certainly something that we can do, but most people find it's not the best option for them. Most people just um, will decide to change what they use the car for or, or get a different car. Matt, do you have any experience with uh, any 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 people coming with the uh, super old Model S's or uh, or Nissan Leafs uh, that you know with a cell fail? So? Yeah, so Nissan Leafs, the twenty four kilowatts, we've upgraded quite a few cars to the forty kilowatt. So there's a conversion kit that enables that. That takes their range up to about one hundred seventy miles, so it's quite good. Um, but that's quite an expensive repair, and that's peak where it has degraded, isn't it? And then a repair isn't viable on that twenty four. What's nice with that is the customer is paying quite a lot of money, but they're actually getting a car that's better than it was when it was new, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So what a few scenarios where that's happened is often they've weighed up a 40 kilowatt hour leaf and thought, I'm happy with my car. It's very clean, very tidy. It's been MOT. There's no advisories. Um, I'd rather just put a 40 kilowatt hour battery in it, save some money. And then their 24 kilowatt hour battery, they might, use for other sources, you know, a power wall and stuff, or try and sell it on and recoup some money. So that's obviously quite a viable solution for that. The 30 kilowatt hours, we've done some sales, haven't we, and fixed them on the 30 kilowatt hour leafs. That seems to be fairly common, doesn't it, for the middle sales at the back? 
to fail. With the Teslas, I don't know. I, I, I haven't, I've done quite a few repairs on Model S batteries now. I haven't come across a degraded one yet, Pete, have you? I've just come across failed ones more than... I've not seen one that's excessively degraded. No, it's, it's it purely been repairs on those. Yeah, and we've managed to do some different repairs on them. And I think even the cheapest one was about £2,600 or something to do a repair on the whole battery, which is not mega money. So, yeah, and again, that's a good thing about being with Heather and, and independent because uh, with Tesla, it's obviously a new battery, which is around 14, 15 grand, I think, isn't it? Something like that. So, yeah, yeah. quite a saving there. So, yeah, there's definitely options. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I don't know what you think, Pete, but I think the early technology degrades, and I don't know if we're going to see the same in the technology we've got out at the moment in 10 years' time. I don't know if we're going to see that. The, the faults we're seeing on cars that are 10 years old now, we won't necessarily see on cars that are new now in 10 years' time because obviously the technology is, is improving fairly quickly. The biggest changes in, in terms of battery degradation, the biggest things that appear to affect it is what sort of cooling system the battery has and um, what sort of charge and discharge rates the battery sees. And if you double the size of the battery it can do the same amount of work with half the effort, if that makes sense. Therefore, if you have two cars that are the same and one of them the battery is twice the size, that battery is working, um, that battery is putting in a lot less effort. So, um, you know, if you take, for example, a Volkswagen e-Golf and then you take the Golf GTE, which is the same car, but it's a plug-in hybrid rather than a full electric, you could drive both of those cars at 30 miles an hour and the e-Golf the e is, is barely breaking a sweat, and the, the GTE is, is going as hard as it can because that, that is as much as that battery can put out. And obviously, over the last 10 years, EV batteries have got a lot bigger. Therefore, the effective load on them, what we would call the C rate, the, the charge and discharge rates, um, have effectively become um, less effort for the batteries. The, the other thing I mentioned is the cooling system. So... Um, Ten years ago, we, there were quite a few cars around that didn't have any battery cooling system at all. So the, the Nissan Leaf is one of them. The uh, e-Golf is another. And um, some of the, the Peugeot Citroen models didn't, didn't have any cooling on them. And then some cars had air cooling, where it would just take air from inside the car and blow it through the pack. Air cooling has, has virtually disappeared because it means you need to leave space in the battery for the air to circulate. So in order to yeah. fit a bigger battery in the car, they had to get rid of all the airspace. So liquid cooling is... is um, by far the most common type now and with the benefit of hindsight we can look back at the, the Tesla Model S we mentioned which we haven't particularly seen high levels of degradation and we can say well actually they were liquid cooled and it was a large capacity which is the format that other manufacturers in the main are now following. And just to just to clarify or, or kind of uh, extend to what you said uh, Peter, the, uh, it's not the, the whole pack that has to work less, it's individual cells basically have Less discharge, which yes. translates to the whole, you know, things just being sitting there, just being, you know, twiddling in the thumbs when you're driving 30 miles an hour, barely yes. added, <laughs> or sometimes just being recharged if you drive uh, down the down the road. You know, given that EVs typically require far less maintenance than ICE cars, which I think we all have to agree on, could you speak about or enumerate all the key things that you s still think needs like regular inspection and upkeep? Um, you know, things that you know a, a typical own owner of an EV has to think about compared to ice car okay if you are um servicing an ice car you have various things that you need to change like uh, the filters for the engine and stuff like that and then you'll, you'll have lots of checks as well um so a lot of the things on a ice car service are just checks and on an electric vehicle basically you, you don't have so many things that need to be changed but you you still have most of the things that need to be checked so, I mean, certainly um, you want to check your tyres, brakes, suspension and steering. The brakes are particularly a thing to keep an eye on with electric vehicles because, as we, we all know, that um, regenerative braking can do a lot of the braking for us. Therefore, um, we, we don't have the brake pads cleaning the discs as we would have done in the old days um, with a, you know, a traditional sort of automatic car where you're sort of on the brake all the time. Um and equally, um, the brakes don't get as hot, so that means it doesn't boil off the moisture. So corrosion on the brakes um, can be a little bit of a factor. It's not a major issue, but it's something that's certainly worth checking every service and acting on um, if you do find an issue. So in terms of the chassis checks, I, I, I 
Would you agree, Matt, is basically tyres, brakes, suspension, steering? Yeah. On the EV stuff, with the weight of the battery, you tend to get a lot more um, issues with weird alignment, which seems to be part of the service schedules on EV cars where it wasn't on ice engines. It's more of a, a check wheel alignment, which is um, quite yeah. important, um, especially when you're getting abnormal tyre wear and going through tyres when you don't need to. Do EVs actually have a beefy? I mean, they probably have a beefier suspension, right? Does that uh, help with the wheel alignment or just makes it worse? I think, yeah, it's designed differently, isn't it, to hold that weight. And obviously the shift on acceleration, deceleration and the actual amount of acceleration, deceleration, there's a lot more stress on your suspension and bushes and, and tyres. And I think um, a lot of electric vehicles that are on the market now, and certainly the older ones, are based on existing petrol and diesel cars. And whilst certain things have been upgraded and things like that, they perhaps haven't been upgraded as much as they should have done. So, But it, you'll get certain vehicles with an ice engine where and you'll get the same thing with an electric vehicle and the electric vehicle the suspension will wear out at a slightly faster rate just because there's a bit more load on it okay so yeah so if you buy a new ev you know perhaps look for ones that, that were purposely designed from ground up to be an ev rather than a i think they call them multi-energy platforms uh, <laughs> yeah and, and I, th I think um sometimes as well it's it's a fact that you tend to notice these things more so for example you know when you think about wheel alignment if if you're going down the road with, with your wheels like this um yes it's going to wear your tires out but also it might have a noticeable effect on your range because obviously they're not rolling as efficiently as they would do if they were in a, a straight line and you know things like suspension and things like that it, a, a tiny little noise you might not have noticed if you had a great big diesel engine sort of masking that noise but when you have a car that's much quieter you do tend to notice yeah. little noises and things and um mm. to be honest that can only really be a good thing for road safety because it means these sorts of issues will get noticed sooner but moving on to the the other parts of the service um it, it, it gets sort of slightly vehicle specific after this point but um whatever sort of cooling systems and things like that the car has it's it's worth doing a check because um you know some vehicles like they, there's a particular hybrid vehicle that's made by a well-known german manufacturer and um basically if you, if you have a coolant pipe split then it will um it will cook the inverter in that car and that will result in a very expensive repair so whilst you you can't pre-plan for everything road conditions and stuff like that it's it's worth looking at that sort of thing for a service to say oh actually we can replace this pipe that's 25 pound plus a bit of labor and a bit of coolant rather than having a, a much much more expensive repair later down the line when when something's actually overheated there are some vehicle specific services as well so there's uh, some other hybrid vehicles we've seen as well where um because on an electric vehicle, as you know, the, the battery is normally under the floor and, and takes up most of the floor of the car. Yeah. Um, on a hybrid, the battery is much smaller and it normally fits in the boot area. And um, we have seen certain models where the sunroof drains block up. And then because the water can't run out the bottom of the car in the normal way, the water will sort of gradually fill up the boot area. And of course, that's where the hybrid battery is. So you then start getting sort of issues like that. And those sorts of things can be prevented to a certain extent. Because when you get the car in for a service, you can make sure the sunroof drains are clear, get rid of any leaves and debris that, that might then later down the line cause that sort of expensive issue. So it's certainly worth keeping on top of these things. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Any any stories like that, Matt? Any... Yeah, i literally written down roof drains here. <laughs> it's on the uh, manufacturer servicing to, to unblock them. Uh, another thing I was going to say, Pete, with the cooling, is um, the air conditioning servicing um it's quite important because some of the batteries are air conditioning cooled. And I found that you can have no gas in the system and you don't even get a warning. Yeah. Which, it, it, which yeah. I don't know why they don't warn you that your air con system's low. In that yes, instance. I've noticed that on a few vehicles, something that's quite critical to the operation of the vehicle doesn't give yeah. the driver any indication that it's gone wrong. Um, yeah. And that's obviously the manufacturer's decision to make it that way. But um, that's another reason why these things need checking. And also, if, if you suspect there's an issue with your car, it could be nothing, but it's it's worth getting it checked out before it becomes a bigger problem. Yeah, especially when the air conditioning's cooling your battery and it's not doing a very good job and you don't even know. It's, it's, yeah. funny, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, my car was literally in service yesterday um, on the recall. Uh, of the battery coolant 
um, in early Kias, there was a they put in wrong coolant or wrong type of coolant um, that could have calcified or whatever the word is. There could have been some basically stone chips or whatever or bits of you know um, what's the word that I'm looking for calcification. No, it, it, it uh, sort of um, yeah crystallizes and, and crystallizes that, that restricts the flow. Yeah, um, that that um, vehicle's got quite a clever feature on it actually because. Um, um, it, it monitors the speed of the coolant pumps. Um, and if this speed is too high, it knows that there's a circulation issue because um, obviously if you, if you imagine pumping something by hand, if it doesn't involve any effort at all, then it's just, it's just there, basically, that's yeah. a warning sign. And, and the, car will actually, the car will actually spot that. So that one's... That one's better than most in detecting. Mm-hmm. I, I had I had a warning once on the dashboards in that car, so saying something about the uh, the coolant. Please stop driving. I t- you know ten of the cars the car stopped, and when I turned it back on again, everything was fine. The warning just went away, um, and I knew that the car was going to have to go to the garage because of that recall. But oddly enough, a couple of weeks after that, the aircon started making, and I I quote literally my wife here making a Darth Vader noises. Um, so uh, the, the recall yesterday obviously was free because uh, it was un- covered under warranty, but the um, but I had to pay 220-something pounds for uh, regassing of the aircon because uh, that obviously failed as well, and that's not covered under warranty. But that's considered um, wear and tear, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was, they, they said there was only 370 grams of uh, uh, gas, uh, and it's supposed to be 1,000-something. And I was like, okay, well, cl- surely that system is connected to the battery cooling system somehow, I, I presume. I mean, I mean, you probably know much better than I do. Um, but I presume so, because there is no separate air cooling circuitry in that car, as far as I know. Um, so I was kind of hoping that it's going to be covered under, under warranty. Um, but um, just going, going back to that question, actually, just out of my pure interest, if I was to bring that car to a Hevra garage and say, can you fix this recall under you know, yourself rather than me bringing it to a Kia garage? Is that possible as well? Or uh, does that have to be handled by a garage? No, that, that would need to be done by an agent of the manufacturer because there's no, uh, not, not for any technical reason, um, but there's, there's no system in place for an independent garage to be reimbursed or for the, the right records to be kept on, on recalls that have been done and stuff like that. So that would need okay. to be done by a dealership. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's free of charge to the uh, to the owner of the car anyway. So obviously there's no harm that way. But I'm sure. Well, hopefully this will improve at some point because I think I had to wait about a month and a half for them to to see me because it's a procedure that takes the entire day apparently. Um, and yeah, the guy explained to me in details why. But uh, I'm not gonna like trying to repeat what he was saying. But basically, manufacturer says this should take two hours, and in practice they found out. They need to take much longer to actually do this properly. <laughs> so, um, so just going back to the 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 question that I have here, and again, I have quite few, so we're uh, probably not going to get through all of them. If somebody buys a, a used EV, obviously with with a nice car, you, you you know you can go to any garage and they'll check it. If especially if you have somebody trusted. Um, with EVs, again, everyone's kind of worried that it's a black box, and you know. How do you assess the battery's uh, state of health and and you know and the rest of the, the the system? Is that something you see a lot of people bringing their their um, EVs that they want to buy on secondhand markets from somebody and and they ask you, can you plug that in and see what's wrong with it or you know have a have a look? Have you seen a lot of that, a lot of that? And what sort of advice would you give to somebody buying a, a secondhand car? No, I haven't had people asking for state of health of a battery unless the battery's been faulty. Um, and the only other time we've measured state of health of a battery is when we're buying a battery to put in a vehicle. Um, okay. I haven't really come across it in that sense. I think um, it's often something I think would be good to know that figure before you buy a car. So I don't know if it's something that will happen where used car dealers advertise the car with a state of health of the battery. Um, it, it it's definitely worthwhile. Um, but yeah, not something I've really been asked for as such. Okay. Okay. I mean, yeah, it seems like most people just buy the, I, I, people are on on one hand worried about buying secondhand cars because they're worried about, you know, what they're going to buy. Will it last basically? And all this, you know, especially lately you hear all the 
nonsense in the uh, in the press that's probably based on like you know ten examples in the whole world. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, uh, and you know, prepaid by uh, by uh, wealthy companies that are afraid of losing the market. Oh, um, but the um, and and the second thing is that you know, new cars obviously the the technology still progresses enough. New cars are very. Um, uh, it's just tempting to have the latest car because it will have a better range servicing and all that stuff. So you know, perhaps we are in early days of of secondhand EV ownership. Uh, I I tend to keep my cars more than. So my car is now uh, uh, more than three years old, um, and we're probably going to keep it for another two years at least. Um, you know, because there's nothing wrong with it. It still has the same range as it had when it was brand new, and according to the. Uh, ODB to dongle at least the state of health is still 100%. Although I, I'm not entirely sure how I, how much I trust that uh, assessment. <laughs> um, but it has to be said it's a way better car than my first EV, which was a 30 kilowatt hour leaf. When it comes to battery uh, technology, um, so I, I don't know what you know what else I could say to people who are willing to buy a secondhand EV and want to be kind of certain that it's not going to go bad in a year or two. <laughs> I think um, EVs are very reliable compared to how many we see forty compared to how many are on the road. I don't know what you think, Pete. But also, I think what happens is, you know, ICE cars have been out for such a long time, and you know, and you get a diesel with a forty DPF, and it's kind of we've normalised to it, and we, it's not frowned upon. It's just part of owning a car, and you replace the brakes and you replace everything else that goes with it, and the actual cost of owning an EV car in terms of maintenance is going to be a lot cheaper than a nice car for sure. Um, and I think with less problems personally, so I don't know why you would be scared of making a change for that sense. I definitely don't think that the cost of owning an EV car is more than a nice car. That's for sure. Um, but I'm sure somebody, right. yeah, that's you're right. And I think also if you, um, you know, if you buy it from a legitimate, um, place that's selling it, you'll have certain buyer protections in place, you know, uh, it's sort of minimum three month warranty and all this sort of stuff. So I think, yeah, it's just a case of uh, making sure you're happy with the car. And then if you buy it and, and the worst does happen, then you, yeah, you can take it back and get it sorted or, or refunded. So. But I'm sure if somebody turned up with a, uh, a used EV and said, could you give it a, have a look and tell me, you know, if there's anything wrong with that car, I'm sure you can do that for them as well, right? For yeah, an independent carriage to do that. I'm always trying to encourage people to kind of go into a field of engineering or anything engineering related. On the in a similar vein, somebody actually asked me legitimately this question. It wasn't me just putting that in. As I usually do. So, if anyone's pursuing a career in EV maintenance, what sort of skills, knowledge areas would you recommend they focus on during their training? And uh, I mean, do they have to like? Presumably, if somebody's starting to you know wants to be a mechanic now. It's like AEV maintenance is like a given skill, but you know, I still have to ask. Um, so I, our apprentices, um, at the minute just go through, um, the normal apprenticeship like they would have done four or five years ago, but enrolled in their apprenticeship, they do come out with a level two and three EV qualification at the end of it as well. And I think it's still important with an EV car, you've still got your rolling chassis your comfort electronics inside everything that's still the same is is a nice car and especially when you do work on ev cars and you're working on hybrids you still need to know how an engine works so i think a normal apprenticeship is still the right way to go um i'd probably just make sure you're working within a garage that is willingly taking on ev cars and not pushing them away because that's obviously what's going to leave you behind is the hands-on experience in the garage so as long as you're working with a garage that's moving forwards um then the apprenticeship role should cover exactly what you need. Okay. Do you have any uh, people, uh, you know, approaching you about the, with this sort of question, Peter? Um, yeah, we do. And I, I would like to see um, a ground up um, EV training course, to be honest, where you, you can come into it with no experience of cars and learn everything that you need to know. And unfortunately at the moment, that isn't really the case at the moment. If you want to get into it, you basically have to learn about petrol and diesel cars and then sort of do the electric bit on the end. Um, and I think, you know, we, although we're involved in it every day, you have to remember as part of the bigger picture, we're, we're still relatively early days. And I think hopefully that will, that will change over time. 
I think um, the way things may possibly develop is that in the future we'll have, for want of a better word, a sort of chassis technician who deals with the brake suspension, steering, tyres and all that sort of stuff. And then we'll have a different type of technician who will deal with things like the high voltage systems, the networks, the thermal management systems. So one will deal with the sort of um, more um, sort of physical type of work and the other one with the more sort of thinking and um, investigating type work. Um, but again, I think that's I think that's something for the future that once once things are much more mainstream and the majority of cars in garages are electric. That's yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, it kind of does make sense. The one, the one thing that I noticed, you know, um, with, with ice cars like like you, Matt mentioned, they've been around for such a long time. Everything's a bit of a you know a normal thing. Um, but there's also I don't know, at least to me, um, most of these cars seem to be very similar in nature. Like you know, um, there isn't. If you if you strip away the the chassis and like the colors and you know uh, an interior, uh, I think cars are ice cars are cheaper to manufacture because um, probably there's like three companies in the world who that make engine blocks and most of the components and you know OEM manufacturers just kind of just just slap it together and add a bit of the flavor to it. Whereas with my feeling is with with electric cars, there's still it's still early days, and there's still way more variation between models and, and makes. This is just my, you know, pure um, speculation, uh, pretty much because I, I have zero experience taking cars apart and comparing them. Would you agree with with that that speculation? And if you do, given the variety of them, you know, does that make your life way more difficult as a as an independent garage? Um, I I would agree with you. There's much more variety, and I I think that's. Um, that's always something that happens with a bit of new technology. Different manufacturers try different things, and then eventually they sort of start converging on the things that are the, the best mix of the various compromises, if you like. Because um, if you go back about 20 years, in when sort of diesel started becoming popular, um, Matt, you'll probably remember this, you, you you sort of had um, you sort of had the common rail, and you had the pump dues, and then you had the sort of electronic injection pump types. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because obviously that's not what we're talking about. But it's just an example of how we had a variety of different technologies, and then eventually they sort of converged, and they all just started making basically the same. And um, I think you're right with with electric vehicles. We've we've seen far more variety, and I think to be honest, from a um, technician's point of view it makes it much much more interesting to have a variety of different types of systems but it, it can catch you off guard a little bit and this is this is partly why we have the vehicle guides that i mentioned earlier to explain the differences between every car because there are a lot of them and it, it can potentially catch you out if you're not familiar with with how something works um i think going forward it's actually something that we'll probably see a bit less of because we're starting to see certain things like the way um, manufacturers measure the voltages of the individual cells, the way the manufacturers cool the batteries. There used to be more of a variety, and you can see that the manufacturers are tending to pick the ones that um, are preferable for various reasons, and the other ones are starting to disappear. So I, I think it's only a matter of time before they all become a bit more similar even if they're very different in terms of their appearance and their features and things i think in terms of the technical stuff they will will get a lot more similar but um yeah yeah okay and, uh, and i'm sure that's going to lower the uh uh the manufacturing costs as well massively right if you uh, can absolutely make, i mean if you yeah. if you look at the complexity of a modern ice car um the only reason they're cheap is because they make so many of them like if you wanted to make one in your shed it would it would take you forever but uh, <laughs> But bonus question before we we finish the um, if you had to like say or pick one or two things that would make uh, uh, EV manufacturing or no, EV maintenance sorry not manufacturing um, uh, way easier for you what would it be like if you if you could talk to a, a you know all of the OEMs and say just do this one two three things and our lives will be way easier what would, what would it be. <laughs> Um, one thing um, we sometimes find difficult that, if anything, has actually become harder since working on ICE vehicles 
is that sometimes you'll want to measure a particular voltage or something um, and you can't get to the bit you need to get to. And, um, of course, you can take it all apart, but then you can't measure what you wanted to measure because you want to measure it while it's while it's operating. Yeah. Um, so, um, obviously, they have to factor in things like water tightness and safety and things like this, but but maybe a few more windows where we could get into would be one. Um and uh, if I'm allowed to, if I'm allowed to have another one as well, um, what, one thing that's that's a lot easier is um, um, Tesla. The way you program new components, because generally when you fit a new component on a vehicle, you'll need to program it to the car to make sure it's on the right software level at the same of the car. Not not just Tesla, but but all vehicles, and not just EV actually, ICE as well. Um, you'll fit a new component, and you'll need to program it to make sure it's at the same software level and it's matched to the other components in the car or whatever it is for that particular part. And um, Tesla have actually made that process a lot slicker than most other manufacturers. And I personally would like to see other manufacturers follow. What about you, Matt? Um, don't know. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> I suppose if you were doing one manufacturer, your life would be quite easy, I think, because you can get on board with how they do things, get the right tooling and that. When you're covering a ra- high range of manufacturers, there's, often it's the tooling that's the restriction. So you need to invest in a lot of different tooling sometimes. Um, and even just things like servicing, sometimes you just need um, a dealer tool to do a battery evaluation sometimes. And I wish there was maybe a more um, uh, like OBD read that was generic for all vehicles. Exactly, yeah, that would make life a bit easier in that sense. Because um, I think... Uh, it should be in interest to do so a bit because I think um, there's always going to be independents that need to service these cars. So um, it's for the servicing side, but I think it should be made fairly easy because yeah. um, you want to make EV owners um, experiencing easy, easier than having to be restricted and find a garage that can, can't do it and et cetera. So. Okay. So just OEMs open up your, your data basically. Give give access, give better access to uh, independent garages. Uh, they, they 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 give you access. It's just the investment to do it. Sometimes it's yeah. Then then you unify your tools basically, or you know. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose once the uh, the components are a bit more common and the same or similar, it might be easier. Then I don't know. Uh, but you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to put a a, ho- a hopeful uh, thread in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, right. I think that one thing that will get easier is um, the cars are being made in far greater numbers now, especially when you consider, like, if you look at the Peugeot Citroen range, for example, you, you've got small cars, bigger cars, vans, and everything that all have very similar powertrains. And I think things like that, once, certainly from our point of view, if we, if we want to repair um, inverters and onboard chargers and things like that, once we've got our head around one particular one, then that's going to have so many applications, which... I think has been a struggle for remanufacturing in the past because in the grand scheme of things, some of these vehicles, there aren't that many on the roads. So that should improve. Um, the more cars are on the road, the more of a market there is for remanufacturing. And, and so. hmm. um, And another thing I think that should be improved in general, don't you think, Pete, is just the charging network to help EV drivers a bit. I think uh, the, the manufacturers are making amazing cars um, coming up with these like they must be investing so much money and coming up with these really slick, great cars, and then sometimes stuff they haven't got control of, the charging network out of their system um, lets it down a bit sometimes, and it's a shame because yeah, that's something they haven't got control of. But yeah, yeah, I mean that's the uh, that's the downside of ha- of having a model like most OEMs do compared to Tesla, where they control everything: the car, the charging network, and the software as well on both ends, so they can make that experience much slicker. But I, yeah, I mean, put it this way, compared to what it used to be like when I started driving EVs at the late 2015, uh, I can I can comfortably drive now my car. I mean, my car can do, I can jump into it and drive basically to Yorkshire without having to stop for like four and a half hours and, you know, and still have about 10% of the battery left. Um, like <laughs> back in the day when I when I had the Nissan Leaf 30 kilowatt hour, it was, uh, it was a bit harder and, and 24 car, uh, four kilowatt hour before that, that I that I had on loan, uh, it was hard to drive that car, you know, to a pub in Sussex and back to back home. 
without having to recharge on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, yeah, there's, there's some, you know, horror stories that I hear about charging, um, networks where, especially at peak times when people have to queue and all that, but, uh, there's just way more chargers now available. So I always tell people just stop more often. Don't go to the places everybody else is going to and, and you'll be fine. But yeah, there's, there's still loads that needs to be improved, but I think we're still in early days. Thank you guys for your time, first of all. But uh, if you can plug in yourself and, you know, where people can find you um, and how people can get a hold of you if they have more questions or more, you know, or, or they're in the industry, they want to talk to you about anything. Yeah, so if you're interested in any more information about Hevra, you can visit our website, which is www.hevra.org.uk. Um, or if you're outside the UK, it's hevra.eu. Um, and all the garages on there, we've we've made sure they're qualified and we provide them with our technical support and share experiences across the network. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, if you do want to get in contact, obviously uh, you can go through our website, Cedar Electric, or our social media. Um, we're always at the end of that, which is also Cedar Electric. Um, yeah, and then that's probably the best way to contact us, really, or email me at matt at cedarelectric.co.uk. Cool. Thank you guys for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much.